Because once you see the deficit frame, like the lack or defining people by lack as opposed to aspiration and their humanity as assets, once you start to understand that, it's all around you, right? Like, and with anything, once you start to see it, you can't unsee it and it becomes part of everything. So you'll hear something and you'll be like, is that true? And who benefits from that? Who said that? Like, where did that come from? You just start unpacking it over and over again. What would the world be like if justice were normal? That's what the founding team at Make Justice Normal, Erica Seth Davies, Anjali Deshmukh, Carrie Hansen, and I ask ourselves every day. And they are all here with me today. I'm Monique Aiken, your guide for Into the Record, the podcast from the Make Justice Normal Collective, one of the many projects we're rolling out this year and beyond. In today's episode, you'll learn more about the team, our mission, our values, what we're imagining, as well as our other projects. Ultimately, we dream of a world where justice is the default and injustice, the stuff of history books. Ladies, I'm so excited for all of us to be here together on the podcast today. My mom showed me how to visualize systems, which I know this group visualizing systems is like our, what we talk about all the time. And she did this in a lot of ways, but I'll mention one. When I had a teacher around seven that claimed I couldn't understand what was going on in the classroom and was constantly degrading my intelligence in words and on paper, she got my hearing checked. And then she started to ask parents in the class, what's going on here? Is there something else going on? And it turned out that actually all the kids that came from immigrant families and identified at the time as bilingual were being treated the same way. And so she ended up basically moving us to a different public school system, which didn't change the, the, the system in general, but it did start to teach me that this, what we're doing, collectives like MJN, which are based on loving care and solidarity and justice, are really important to disrupt the gaslighting. I've dealt with chronic pain since I was about 13, and the intensity of it has shifted over the years, but I still manage it today. And now that I've been able to sit with it, I've learned a lot about medicine and pain management, worked with healers, shamans. During that, that work, I've learned to allow the pain to not define me, but to be a part of me. And so while I've learned to appreciate the natural world and love and care in amazing and different ways through that process, I also learned determination, deep sadness, stubbornness. I think a willfulness has like really allowed me to keep going. But I also learned to hide. And I learned to hide a lot of myself, to stuff your health, because you have to get through a day. You have to get through a week in years. And when I stopped fighting and I just learned to sit with my health and learn to move through and really start the healing process, I also learned a lot about myself. But what that allowed me to do was take what is typically considered a deficit to so many others, even to myself, and I was able to turn that into an asset. And when you're in pain, you don't always have a lot of outward energy to give. But what it does allow you to do is it allows you to sit 
and it allows you to listen and allows you to listen deeply. And so I think what I've been able to do is learn to listen to communities, listen to individuals in a very deep way, and then help take what I'm learning and translate that into the work of um, supporting, being a bridge when needed, but then also being part of a community in a different way. When I was about 19 years old, between my sophomore and junior year of college, I went on a summer program to the Gambia. It was about seven, eight weeks, about two months of living in a small village just beyond the Senegalese border in, in, I guess it was rural Gambia. And while there, I had an opportunity to visit Jufere, which is the village to which Alex Haley traced his roots home of Kunta Kinte and his descendants are still there. And while visiting the village, we actually took this little boat out to, I think it was called St. George Island. Now it's called Kunta Kinte Island, just off the coast. And that was my first interaction. That was my first time going to the continent. So that was something I, I was able to do at 19, which is amazing. But that was my first full understanding and interaction with slavery as an institution and what it wrought standing there on that island centuries later, right? And it dawned on me that I was not supposed to be there. I was never supposed to return in any way, shape, or form. It dawned on me what it means to remove, forcibly remove, kidnap, not a person, but generations of people from their home, from their culture, their language, their love. And what that meant for me was it rooted me very deeply in a sense of justice, but also gave me this remarkable clarity regarding my work for the rest of my life. And so I talk about my personal mission being to improve the material conditions of Black people and Black communities. And I mean that, and I do it in so many, or I try to do it in a lot of different ways because I've recognized or had the experience of full circle of that moment and understanding the intentionality of a system and what you have to do, like what you really have to do and believe to actually violate humanity in that way. And so understanding, again, the narratives that go along with that, that would convince anyone that a group of people are less than human for for profit or for personal gain and what has to come with that is is stunning but it really did just actually fortify my commitment to justice and eventually to understanding and one day dismantling I don't know if it'll ha- it won't happen in my lifetime but I'm planting seeds <laughs> to dismantle unjust systems Really, my path towards justice probably started with my grandmother. She was born, raised, and lived in Jamaica. She practiced what she preached and lived a life of generosity. She took in more than 20 kids in her life, even after having eight of her own when her husband passed away when my dad was eight. And she 
provided for people out of the little amount that she had. And this idea of, if you know about a problem, it just might be your responsibility to fix it, came from her. And that was on a sort of small scale, but it's fractal. So I might know about big problems and I might have different capacities to do something about it based on the life I've lived, but then it's now my responsibility to be part of how we fix it. And as the poet Machado said, the path is made by walking. So I did not think I would be on a path to justice 25 years ago when I was first coming out of college. I thought I'd be on a path towards doing something that didn't harm maybe, or maybe international diplomacy of something that I thought would be a tool for making the world a better place. But while at Georgetown, I did understand something else because I took classes in theology and Black liberation theology in specific and philosophy that planted seeds. I also got a chance to read more since then and inspired by some of our professors' syllabi, really. Zora Neale Hurston, James Baldwin, Franz Fanon, but also music moved me on this path. I think about the first time I heard the revolution will not be televised, I was blown away. But I think I barely understood it then. But what I take it to mean now is that the early days and when people are building new ways of doing things like what we're doing and other people like us, rarely do people see that part. That part doesn't make it into the documentary. But this whole process of creating a new world that where it is more just will be hard work and you, everybody, has to choose a side because inaction is also a choice. And that's what I think I have to try to do with you, all of you and with anyone else who shares that goal, be on a path to righting some of those wrongs. So let's talk a little bit about our work and, and doing this and focusing on narrative change. And maybe Erica, We'll begin with you on this one. As one of Into the Records funders through your work with the Racial Equity Asset Lab, tell us how narrative change and the work that we're doing fits with your overall frame of that work too. Sure. Somebody else's imagination created the world in which we live. So clearly there is value in that. And if you want to have a different future, then you actually do have to continue to do this work. So... When I talk about my journey towards justice and I reference like the story that you have to tell yourself to justify dehumanizing an entire group of people for profit, the core of that is there's a story in there. There's a, there's a narrative that is told and reinforced until it's believed to be true, regardless of its truth. <laughs> so one of the things that became clear to me as I was doing work on advancing racial equity and impact investing, that there were all these narratives, all these stories that people were telling themselves and telling others and making decisions on that had not a lick of truth to them. They weren't rooted in facts. And so as I continued to study and understand systems change, and at its simplest, sort of understanding the ways in which patterns are created by structures, policies, practices. What was underneath all of that were cultural norms, were narratives. And that was the seat of deeply held beliefs. 
And so all of a sudden, well, for me, and I know plenty of people know this already, but for me, intentional shifting of narrative became part of the work that I wanted to make sure I was doing, calling out that's a dominant narrative, that's a story, that's a theme, but that's not necessarily true. And if we could point that out and also understand that there are choices that are being made based on these stories, we can make different choices, right? Like we can just say, yeah, I just don't believe that. (laughs) So I'm going to make a different set of choices. And over time, getting more people understanding or hearing a different set of stories that we can we can spark all kinds of change. I think some of the work of Travian Shorters also really sparked my interest in very intentional narrative change. Because once you see the deficit frame, like the lack or defining people by lack as opposed to aspiration and their humanity as assets, once you start to understand that, it's all around you, right? Like, and with anything, once you start to see it, you can't unsee it and it becomes part of everything. So you'll hear something and you'll be like, is that true? And who benefits from that? Who said that? Like, where did that come from? You just start unpacking it over and over again. So it was important to me to call it out in doing the work of addressing equity and impact investing, because that was one of the stories. Why are we not talking about where greatest disparities exist? Do you really think you're going to have deep impact? if we're not having some honest storytelling about how we got here in the first place. Like the sites of the the worst environmental degradation, the sites of the worst health outcomes, the sites of the worst or deepest disparities in terms of, of wealth accumulation. There's a common factor here. And if we're not talking about those things, what's the degree of our impact? So the narrative is important to all of the things that we're doing because that's what holds it all in place. Carrie, what's your take on the why we focus on narrative change? It's critical that everyone be able to tell their story in their own words, in their own voices. Uh, it allows for healing. It allows for thriving. And I think a lot of what we're trying to do in terms of the systems change that we're seeking is not only the disruptant, but it's allowing for healing. It's allowing for the next piece to come forward. And until we retell stories, until we relearn the history of many of the stories and the foundation of those stories, uh, we can't move forward. I really look at the next level of generative storytelling that we can do together. And I think that's some of finding those voices is one of the things that we here at MJN are really trying to do. Like, whose story are we not hearing? How do we ensure that their full story is heard? Anjali, how about you? There's the words, but there's also the stuff around the words and between the words that often is a part of narrative making and it's harder to put words to. And as a words person, as somebody that loves words so much, I struggle with this. And I generally think of narratives as, it's like the soup of your beliefs and truths and meanings and falsehoods that are both directly said, but also indirectly implied in our words the images, the sounds, and the stories. And so there's literally what you say and what you hear, but then there's also the hidden messages, the patterns, and the feelings that are all coming together to build a worldview. And in that way, 
narratives are like world building. I think Erica already said that, but there's also the stuff that's going on inside of us. It's also the world building that's happening inside our own minds. And, and in that sense, the narrative in and of itself is not really the whole picture. It's how our brains are processing all that information. And I think that's what I struggle with, right? Because there are the conscious things that we see and we hear and we process straight up, right? It's what we hear, we interpret it, and we stitch it into the world root. And then there's the soup that slips right past our consciousness and it goes straight into our brains. And that's where we have to be really careful because that's how stereotypes form, lies shape our worldview, racist and dehumanizing ideas stitch into our brains without us even realizing it. What about you, Monique? I think for me, the focus on narrative change is important because you have to change your mind first before you can change your actions. And as Anjali and Erica so eloquently said, and Carrie, there's this toxic soup that's already in us because we've been all been formatted with the same discs of the patriarchy and racism and extractive Western capitalism for those of us who are live and were raised in the West. And we have to change our mind about what's possible and that all of that can be rejected and something else can come in its place. We have to change our minds first before we can get to new action. I think of that quote from Alice Walker that we have on our website. Look closely at the present you're constructing. It should look like the future you are dreaming. And I'm just dreaming of something else. So Carrie, let's talk a little bit about the projects that we already have planned. You want to talk a little bit about our thought leadership? Sure. I would say one of the exciting things that we've been thinking and in, in doing on a lot is power, thinking about power structures, power dynamics. And when we think about this, really going to require us all understanding not only how that power is showing up in in all of the seats that we're in, but then also how we can learn from others about how to shift the power and allow for more people to take seats that haven't been at the table previously or up until now. So when we're looking at all of these power structures and power dynamics, one of the things that we really want to ask is what are all of those component parts? Some of the kind of like unsexy pieces that really do allow power to move and people to shift. When we're thinking about investment, what are we talking about in terms of structure? How is capital moved in new ways? How are we allowing for communities to have active voice and choice in that movement? We'll start building a database of this work so that you can then see where can I take some of this learning that has been assembled and then start to bring it into the work that I'm doing, share it with others and help continue to build the database so that we're also continuing to shift more power. Anjali, anything else that you would like to add either to the power piece or to tell us about some of the work that you're spearheading with the Arisen? No, that was beautiful, Carrie. I self-identify as an artist (laughs) and the Arisen is really meant to be a home for the artists, like maybe all of us here right now in this conversation that are looking for solutions 
to make justice normal in our cultural asset ecosystems. And right now we're thinking about this in three different ways. One, by making as artists centered on justice. Two, by studying people and structures out there that are basically trying to redesign our cultural asset ecosystems from the way we make and sell cultural assets to where they get viewed, how they get viewed, how they get bought and sold. And then three, by testing our own potential solutions. Right now, we've got a program we're trying to build called Streetworks that we're dedicating in 2024 to Mama Earth. And I think of streetworks like public space galleries that are really dedicated to social practice or community-engaged art. And with this program, we're really going to try, humbly, to offer an alternative to the gated gallery systems that are really totally at their root, designed to exclude and create scarcity to drive up prices. And hopefully at the same time, we're also gonna lean into the possibilities of public spaces as our centers of democracy and our spaces for building shared power. Given that this is very collective work, I also wanna just give a huge shout out right now to creator collaborators that are, I feel them right now in the room with us, even though they're not literally present today. And that is Ernest Barrett a gamer, a system designer, and grateful to call him husband, who is very much a co-creator from day to day on all of the programmatic stuff. And then artist and poet, social justice advocate, Burvi Shah, who has been, for me, a co-conspirator through Circle 4, a collaboration in our project that we've been working on for a decade, maybe at this point, and a really big part of me reframing relationship as art, a form of art, and collaboration, like we are doing right now, as an essential part of art making. And of course, Daryl Ratcliffe and Nico Trainer of Gossipian Investments, who have been, again, since the minute we met, Daryl, I think it's been almost a year now, I think. He's just been side by side with our team and he's doing very deep work as a social practice artist and community organizer in South Dallas and beyond building ecosystems for artists. And I think, you know, very much centers collaboration and relationship as core to his work. Monique, do you want to share a little bit about the work you've been doing on the podcast? The podcast is like the stand in the middle of an oyster. Hopefully it can be added to with other layers that will make into a different pearl at the end. The idea of podcast as a service is that there are others who are the voices of justice and an impact who don't have a platform. And it's really hard work to put a digital asset together that looks like an audio file that is a high quality one. And they have to often wait for gatekeepers or to be invited into someone else's digital media, news media platform or things like that. And there's not a lot of economies of scale to everyone creating their own podcast, finding the ears, getting the distribution required to get a whole machine ramped up to both get the content out the door and then disseminate it over time, particularly if you have to keep going. But what about the people who just need one? Or a few to talk about a series that they're working on, some intellectual property that they've built or thought leadership. So we'd like to explore a way to create some economies of scale in this, that everyone doesn't have to do the same work. And that can we, MJN, play a curatorial role because the people who care about impact and justice that listen to us very much are likely to care about 
what these other folks are talking about. And so is there a way to create some symbiosis that we can advise to the degree we've learned a lot and are happy to share it with other people, but also how do we allow this platform to allow more voices to be heard and that they don't have to wait for gatekeepers in order to own the IP that they create and disseminate it as they wish. And we can be part of the solution. Ultimately, the goal is to be there for others. Again, voices of impact and justice cannot be held back. And we need more of them to tell their stories, to provide information about their solutions so that others can replicate them and we can achieve scale faster at the rate of the change of the challenges that we face. So Erica, I know you also do lots of other things. Um, We're so grateful for your leadership and all that you do in the world. Can you talk a little bit about the rest of the work that you do? So I am the CEO of Reaventures. And uh, we're, yeah, we are a social enterprise that leverages capital to advance reproductive and maternal health equity. We do that in a number of ways, including venture investing through our subsidiary, RH Capital. And that team actually invests in innovation in women's health in general and reproductive and maternal health in particular, and doing so through a health equity lens, understanding the both and of who the founder is, right? So we do support a few founders whose companies are really targeting Black maternal health outcomes, for example. But what does that look like for any company, right? Like, how do we think about the application of a health equity lens and how do we think about that in process? So that's part of the work that we do. We also support corporate engagement and shareholder advocacy. So again, leveraging shareholder activism really as a resource, as a tool for advancing or operating in alignment with reproductive health rights justice. When RIA was created, there was not a lot of investment in women's health. That has increased. But how do you think about building an ecosystem, building a field, again, through an equity lens? And so that requires understanding different actors, being able to provide some of the resources, the frameworks, tools for decision making that can help people that can accelerate that work in the field as well. And so we do that through ecosystem building. And finally, we have our own narrative change approach and uh, podcast with P.S. Blossom uh, that, again, is thinking intentionally about dominant narratives? How do we reframe the what and the who of the intersections of capital entrepreneurism, reproductive health rights justice? And then the other is the Racial Equity Asset Lab, and that is continuing the field building work as well as supporting individual foundations or other types of investors on their own journey with respect to application of a racial equity lens in financial decision-making. Anjali, you're an artist and novelist, I know, and game designer and amazing things because you're a Renaissance woman in so many ways. Can you talk a little bit about the rest of the other work that you do? I'm super grateful right now to be co-founding a volunteer-run grassroots swing left chapter in Western Queens to help get out the vote. And we'll be writing letters actually over the next month to voters in Virginia as much as we can before this upcoming November election. In case people aren't aware, Virginia's entire state legislature is up for grabs and it is also the last Southern state where abortion is still legal. So if Republicans take control, the governor has promised to sign a ban immediately. So we are furiously going to try and write as many letters as we can to get voters out to the polls. And please feel free to reach out to me if you're game to write letters with us. Um, We have a lot of work to do between now and this November. And next year is our runway as well. The federal election's coming up. I always say to my four-year-old, we want more democracy and more rights. 
And now he parrots it back to me. So <laughs> I'm here for you too, Anjali, if you need some support with that. Let's talk a little bit about inspiration. <laughs> you know, how do you guys keep going? We had shades of people saying why they need to keep going, but what helps you keep going? Anjali, maybe we'll start with you. I'll just quickly share a quote by Erica Badu that also is on my mind pretty much like constantly right now. The music business is motivated by money. Music is motivated by energy and feelings. And I think of that, this quote, in a lot of ways. But right now, I guess what's on my mind is that we don't see our financial systems as forms of art. And I often wonder if we were to bring the spirit and the creativity and the radical thinking that artists bring to change our financial systems, what could we be creating? Carrie, what about your forms of inspiration? Or where do you draw inspiration? What keeps me motivated? Nature and wild places. They, they ground me. They also give me and feed energy, provide a sense of awe. And then I would say the last thing that keeps me motivated, keeps me going is music. So funk and disco dance parties are definitely keeping it flowing and keeping it going. <laughs> Erica, I think you're next. Uh, Probably family, my kids and their energy. The fact that now I understand they actually pay attention to what I say and pay attention to what I do because I hear it back. So they actually inspire me to keep going and to maybe have a different set of options for them when they get older or as they continue to mature, that they enter a different world because of something that we've done here. I think that inspires me, that keeps me going. My family, this community of folks that we have the privilege of being connected to, I think of, I'm not naming anybody. I learned that a long time ago. But (laughs) there are so many people who are leading organizations, launching funds, creating platforms, just all the things that are necessary for systems change, right? So that there's a new set of actors and vehicles and tools that we can actually look to in the future to say, okay, this is part of what we, this is the world that we want to see. Every day when I read some other post or see somebody else's work, that, that keeps me inspired as well. I think, Monique, it's up to you. What keeps you on track? I'm inspired by truth tellers. And I think if we tell the truth loud enough and long enough, we just might mess around and save the world. And folks like Vanessa Nakate, Heather McGee, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Rachel Maddow, Manning Maribel, like all those people to me are like just speaking plain. And it's really important for us to just simply pay attention to them, platform them, listen to them and be truth tellers ourselves. And actually I'm also inspired by jazz. Jazz musicians, basically make something entirely new out of what's existing through improvisation and their ability to be in sync with each other and play a song that never was created before simultaneously and with beauty and be completely at ease in that emergence is something I'd like to embody in the working with all of these different people who we might have a chance to work with. And we don't know what music we're gonna make, but we just know we're gonna make some music and somehow it'll be amazing. So. What is our call to hopeful action? Who do we need? And maybe Carrie, we'll start with you. We talk a lot about the imagination gap. So we need the Imagineers to come alongside us. Partners, artists, funders, of course. But we're really looking for partners that want to take the time to be in deep relationship and right relationship. When we started Make Justice Normal, 
we had a very simple idea, which is how do we make justice a norm of our systems instead of something that gets stuck in a programmatic silo? And I think over the last year, we've really tried to unpack what it really means to actually make justice or a value a system norm. And we realized actually the work is all about values, right? What does it look like to structure a policy around those ideas and how we coordinate, cooperate and get stuff done together? And so I think really that's where we are we are today, but hopefully we'll be going through the process of doing that with each of our values and operationalizing them in every single thing we do. Make one decision that's completely rooted in values and see where that leads you. And sometimes it's harder than we think, but even making the hard choice, but to make that decision, just one that's fully rooted in, in values and see what that opens up. So for me, I'd like everyone to make their very next decision based on whether or not it advances justice, even if it does so in just the tiniest way. And we make that choice that is based on whether or not it advances justice, because imagine if millions or billions of people did that with their very next decision and the next decision after that, it would be a butterfly effect for justice. Millions of little decisions moving the world toward justice that could create maybe a justice tsunami. I personally feel so blessed that I get to work with all of you amazing women and Ernest and the others who are part of our collective so far as currently defined. You're just great thought partners and sister friends and I am in deep gratitude that we found each other. If anyone wants to actually say like a closing goodbye kind of moment, please feel free. A huge thanks to Dr. Margot Brown and Jonathan Camiso of the Environmental Defense Fund, who are really instrumental in making our first test of the Streetworks in 2024 possible. Thank Michaela Davis, who used to um, be the director of the Inclusive Economies Portfolio at CERNA, and Patrice Green, who's currently VP of Programs um, at the CERNA Foundation, and their commitment to funding the work. And to our listeners, we're grateful for your time. If you'd like to learn more about Make Justice Normal, visit makejusticenormal.org. For more information about The Real, visit racialequityassetlab.org. And to learn more about Rio Ventures, visit rhiaventures.org. And to learn more about TIP, the Investment Integration Project, check out tiiproject.com. Into the Record is produced by Make Justice Normal in partnership with Pod People. We'd like to thank everyone on the MJN core team, Anjali Deshmukh, Carrie Hansen, Erica Seth Davies, and Sharnay Robinson-Williams. A special thanks to Kristen Engberg and the Racial Equity Asset Lab for their generous support. And at Pod People, Alex McManus, Matt Stav, Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Chris Jacobs, Shay Wotus, Kinsey Clark, and Morgan Foos. I'm Monique Aiken, co-founder of Make Justice Normal, co-founder of the Restarter Fund, contributing editor at Impact Alpha, and managing director at TIP, the Investment Integration Project. To learn more about Make Justice Normal, visit us at makejusticenormal.org or subscribe to our Substack at the same name. Follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram at MJN Now. The MJN Collective has additional programs and products that we are resourcing. We welcome ideas for aligned philanthropic donors and or sponsors. Reach out to learn more about the research we're leading tools we're testing, and models we're prototyping. Send ideas or feedback to me at monique at makejusticenormal.org. Thanks for listening. 
and helping us write justice into the record. 